the words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 8 and taking particularly this evening the 13th verse. The 13th verse in the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. Now that is the introduction to uh, what follows as you observed from the reading in the uh, remaining verses almost of this entire chapter. For the very last verse in which we read, Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now, here I say in verse 13, we have the introduction to that. And you notice this interesting word, therefore. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest, with, thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. Now the word therefore reminds us that that was the reaction of these Pharisees and others to what our Lord had just been saying. And what he had just been saying was this, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That glorious statement that we've been considering together so many Sunday evenings, this perfect summary of the gospel, this astonishing pronouncement in which our Lord makes these supreme claims for himself and indicates in such a wonderful manner the blessings that flow to all who believe on him and who give themselves to him and who follow him. Never was a more magnificent statement made in the world. Never was anything said to mankind more directly to meet their ultimate needs and problems. You can't imagine anything beyond this. In the darkness of this world, with all its consequent problems and hopelessness and despair, here comes one who says that not only has he light, but he is the light, and that nobody need remain any longer in a state of misery or unhappiness or uncertainty. They have but to believe on him and follow him, and they'll find that they're new men and women in a new world, still the same materially, but new to them. Everything transformed, old things passed away, all things become new. Here is one who tells us that God has sent him, and sent him to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, that's his statement, you remember? He hasn't come to judge, he says, he says that specifically. He says, I judge no man. He's already told them earlier on that God had not sent him into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's not denouncing them. He's offering them salvation. He's offering them the greatest boon and blessing conceivable. There's nothing beyond this, I say. And yet this is what we read. The Pharisees, therefore, said unto him. That's their reaction to this blessed person who, who claims that he's the Son of God and who tells us of this Wonderful blessing that he's got to impart. Here's their reaction. 
Here is their response to it. Now, my friends, I want to put it to you this evening that there's something amazing about this. There's something astonishing about it. Don't you feel that in a sense it's almost incredible that anybody could have reacted in that way? But that is how they did react. And the remainder of the chapter, as I say, goes on to show their variations on this one great general reaction. Leading at the end to their taking up stones to throw at him. Leading later on to their conspiring all of them together to get rid of him, to murder him, to trumpet the false charge against him, anything to get rid of him, to get him out of sight. They hated him. And finally, they crucified him. Now, I put it to you that this surely is the greatest problem confronting mankind. There's no problem comparable to this. There are many other problems we all know. The whole problem of the international situation, many another problem. But you know, not one of those problems is as difficult to understand as this. This is the problem of problems. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He came into a world that was looking for deliverance. He offered it them, they rejected him with scorn and crucified him. Well, unfortunately, we are not engaged in some kind of antiquarian or historical study and survey this evening. I'm calling your attention to this because, alas, unfortunately, the same thing is still taking place. The world is still a place of darkness as it was in his time. You know, nearly 2,000 years have passed since this. He described the world as a place of darkness. He that followeth me, he says, shall not walk in darkness. He says, you are in darkness as you are, but you needn't stay there. The world, he says, is a place of darkness. He's come as light into the darkness. And the world is still darkness. There's no need to take up any of your time in proving that, is there? Has the outlook ever been darker or blacker? Has there ever been more confusion and uncertainty? Have the problems of mankind and of human nature been more involved and perplexing than they are at this very moment? Now, that's, I say, in spite of 2,000 years of effort, of culture, of acts of parliament, education, everything that man has been doing and which you can read about in your secular history books, all the great movements of thought, schools of thought and all the rest, in spite of that, the world still remains a place of gross darkness. And yet, you know, still into this world this evening comes the message of this blessed person. That's the business of a preacher. Is to just stand in a pulpit or anywhere else and tell people of this one who said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And to say, look here, that's as true tonight as it was when he uttered it. It's been true through the running centuries. It will remain true. Heaven and earth shall pass away. But he said, my words shall not pass away. And they won't pass away. This is as true and as relevant tonight as it was when he spoke it. I say that in this world at this minute, whatever your personal problem, whatever your position and condition, if you really believe in this person, you will find you've got light. 
and you'll have light within you and you'll be able to walk in a new light in a new way. It is possible. It is happening to men and women constantly as this gospel is preached and they are given power to believe it. Well, then the question is, why does anyone reject it? What was the matter with these Pharisees? Yes, what's the matter with all who still reject it? What's the matter with anybody in this congregation who isn't a Christian? What's the matter with any man or woman who is still trying to grapple with these problems only to fail always ever, whether they be intellectual or moral, political or anything else? What's the matter? Well, now, that is the problem that we must discuss together. I wonder whether it's ever occurred to you to ask yourselves this question. Why are all these details given to us in these Gospels about all these wranglings and disputations between the Pharisees and scribes and Herodians and Sadducees on the one hand and our blessed Lord on the other? Haven't you sometimes, as you've read these various Gospels, felt rather impatient at it all and say, why do we have to bother about all this? What's it matter to us what the Pharisees said or didn't say? Why can't we have just his own positive message? That's what we want. Why are we given all this? And especially in this gospel according to St. John, whom people call the apostle of love. There's more here about these arguments and disputations with the Pharisees and scribes than there is anywhere else. What's the value of it all? What's the point of it all? Have you ever thought of that? Well, now there's only one answer to that question. You know, all this is given to us by the grace and by the kindness of God. What for? Well, of course, primarily that we may see him. Because as he answers these questions, he is showing himself, he is revealing himself. Never was a question put to him, but that he used it somehow to give further light about himself and his great and gracious purpose in the world. But you know, that isn't the only purpose served by these records. There is another one. And it's here I think we see the kindness and the compassion and the consideration of God. I believe he called and caused these writers to write these things in detail and to give us all this account of the disputations in order that we might see ourselves. In order that we might see ourselves objectively. It's a great help then. An illustration is useful, isn't it? Wonderful. That's why people use them. And here, you see, we are able to look on in an objective manner. Now, the classical argument about all this, of course, is that famous story that's told us in the Old Testament scriptures about David. David, you remember, had done a terrible thing. He'd seen another man's wife and he'd liked her. Said, I'd like to have her. And he sent for her and committed adultery with her. He wanted her altogether. So there was the problem of what about her husband? And so governed by lust was David that he contrived the murder of the husband. Terrible thing to do. Adultery and murder. But David couldn't see uh, the enormity of what he'd done. He seemed very pleased about it all. And do you remember what God did? He called his servant, the prophet Nathan, and sent him to David. And Nathan didn't go to David, you know, and charge him with the thing directly and positively. Nathan did a very clever thing. Nathan was a very wise and an astute man. He did what he did was to tell King David a story about some poor little woman who'd only got one sheep, the only one, and yet some cruel men nearby who'd got quite a number. 
When a friend came to visit him, instead of killing one of his own, he took her only sheep and killed it. And David was furious. The thing was impossible. A man who did a thing like that was a man who must be punished severely. The very idea that a man should do this, but take this one ewe lamb of this poor widow woman when he'd got plenty himself. He must be punished severely. David, looking on, you see, could see the thing quite plainly, looking on objectively. There was no difficulty at all. And then Nathan looked at him and said, Thou art the man. I'm talking in parables. I'm just telling you what you've done yourself. And David saw it. Well, now I say there is great value, therefore, in our having these pictures of these Pharisees and scribes and so on. Because as we look at them, objectively, forgetting ourselves for the time being, here is Christ and his great statement, therefore, they say, and bring out their reaction. You see it objectively and you say, well, is that possible? Is it credible? And then you suddenly realize you're doing the same thing yourself. And that has often been the way of bringing many people to conviction for their unbelief, for the enormity of unbelief, for the supreme folly of unbelief, for the terrible tragedy of unbelief. Well, very well, let's look at it together as we see it here objectively. This is a classical passage again on the causes of unbelief. Now, men think, of course, that they know exactly why they don't believe the gospel. They say there's no difficulty about that. I don't believe the gospel, says a man, because I'm an intelligent man. Because I've got a brain. Well, shall I? Just because I think. I'm not governed by my emotions and feelings. I'm a man who thinks. I use my reason, my understanding. And to me it's inconceivable that any man who does that could be a Christian. There are thousands who are in that position. They really believe that. That the cause of their unbelief and rejection of this gospel is... Their ability, their intellectual powers, their understanding. There are others who say it's a matter of knowledge. They are prepared to grant that, well, you couldn't very well blame people for believing this kind of thing until the present century. Because after all, people were comparatively ignorant then. We've made such gigantic strides in the last 50 years, 60 years, and... Especially in the realm of science, because we know things now that have changed everything. And, well, therefore, they say, had I been alive a hundred years ago, no doubt I'd have believed your gospel. But in the light of what I know, just impossible. There are many who think that. And there are many others with many other explanations, psychology, and all these various other things. And in other words, we can sum it up by saying this. That they feel that in many ways this is just a matter of opinion. Why should you expect everybody to believe your gospel, they say? There are differences of opinion in every realm. People differ politically. They differ in their view of art. They differ in what they like in music. There are all sorts of differences. We're not all the same. And we've got our differing points of view. Why should you suddenly claim that this is meant to be universal? That everybody should believe this? Why not say, well, one may and one may not? Well, there's no need to quarrel about it. A man's got the religious complex, well, he'll believe it. If he hasn't, he won't. And then, uh, according to his ability and his knowledge and so on. So the whole thing is easily explained. Now, men believe that there they have a satisfactory explanation for unbelief. But, my dear friends, that isn't what we read here. That isn't what we read everywhere in the scripture. That isn't what the Son of God himself says about unbelief. What does he say? What does the Bible say about it? 
Well, it says this. That the seat and the cause of unbelief are much deeper down in human nature. That it is indeed the deepest and the profoundest thing in men. Unbelief, according to this book, according to this blessed person, is really something that is the result of man's original rebellion against God. It's the deepest thing of all. It's not merely intellect. It's not merely heart condition. It isn't merely a matter of the will. It isn't a matter of surroundings or of circumstances. Now, says the Bible, the fact that this is the 20th century is completely irrelevant because there were unbelievers a hundred years ago. There were unbelievers a thousand years ago. There were unbelievers 2,000 years ago. There were unbelievers even before that. There have been unbelievers ever since men rebelled and fell from God. Now, that is the astounding thing that the modern man doesn't seem to grasp. There's nothing new about unbelief. It's as old as the story of men since he fell. This old Bible's full of it. And the record of the human race outside the Bible confirms the same thing. No, no, the Bible says that man is an unbeliever, that people react to Christ tonight as they did in his time here on earth as these Pharisees did, because at the very center of their being they've gone wrong. It is a profound problem. It's man's own nature, not his particular gifts. It's true of all men, it says. It isn't only true of men of intellect. It's equally true of ignoramuses. And you know that is still true today. It isn't only the communist members of the Brains Trust that are not Christians, you know. Tom, Dick and Harry on the street corner are not either. No difference at all. That's where we fool ourselves. No, no, it's got nothing to do with gifts or absence of gifts. Nothing to do with time, century, nothing to do with color, nothing to do with continent where you were brought up, nothing to do with it at all. People brought up in exactly the same circumstances differ. One believes, one doesn't. So it isn't that. No, no, there's only one reason, and that is this profound illness of the soul of man. Now then, let's see all that illustrated in this section that we're looking at together. What are the causes of unbelief? Well, look at these Pharisees. They are, if you like, the prototype of all unbelievers at the present time. Notice first the element of a general prejudice against him, which was manifested by these people. Have you noticed that? This general prejudice, which they're so obviously guilty of, now, where do I find the prejudice? Well, I find it showing itself in many ways. Here are some of them. You know, these people seem to have had almost a genius at missing the pint, which is uh, quite a remarkable thing, isn't it? There is nothing that astounds me so much as I read these records always as the way in which when they're confronted by something gigantic, they take up a little detail. Now, look at it here. Here stands a man in front of them saying, I am the light of the world, the whole world. I and I alone am the light of the whole world. He that followeth me, he says, I challenge you, he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, 
but shall have the light of life. Well, now, I say this is a stupendous statement. It's a staggering statement. But listen to them. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. What's happening? Well, you see, it's uh, like a, a barrister in court, isn't it? There's a great principle of law involved in a case. Some big matter is at issue. Yet this man gets up, he doesn't deal with this great problem. He's got some little point of order. There are people like that often in debates and in public meetings, are there not? They, 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 they're always concerned about the mechanics, some uh, little odd point of procedure or something. Something tremendous is being held before. They don't seem to see that. It's some point of order that they're taking up. And uh, that's exactly what thou bearest record of thyself. Uh, thy record, therefore, is not true. It was a part of their law to say that uh, everything should be substantiated. There should be two witnesses before a thing was credible and should be believed. They say, you're speaking yourself, you've got no witness. Therefore, we pay no attention to what you say. You see the point, don't you? Here are men in sin. Here are men who are failures in life. Here are men who are in the dark about God and themselves and how to live truly and how to die truly and as to what lies beyond it. Here are men who are utter failures. Here stands one who offers them all they need and all they can possibly ever have by way of salvation. And they take him up on a point of order. Now, what causes people to do that? I'm suggesting to you that it's something very profound in human nature. Now, you'll find that they did that with regard to our Lord's miracles as well as everything else. Take any instance you like, almost at random. Back in chapter 5 of this uh, gospel, we are told of our Lord uh, healing a man at the pool of Bethesda. There was a man who'd been lame all those years, sitting there, being carried there every day, waiting for a stirring of the waters. But alas, poor fellow, somebody else always got in first. And he remained unhealed. Our Lord comes along and says to him, Wouldest thou be made whole? And the man gives his explanation. Our Lord commands him to rise. And he rose up there and then immediately took up his bed upon his back and away he goes home. The Pharisees, these same people, they meet that man and they hear all about it. Now what's their reaction to a stupendous thing like that? Everybody knew the man. They knew exactly this extraordinary thing that had happened. What's their reaction? Well, you see, their reaction was this. This had been done on a Sunday. And was it right to do things like this on Sunday? See, they don't see the miracle. They, they're not amazed at the stupendous thing, the big thing. A regulation has been broken. Regulations are very important. These things are most serious. You read these Gospels, and you'll find that right away through, that was their reaction. The big, the stupendous, the almighty thing that's in front of them, they don't seem to see. But they've got some little finicky point here and there. Matters of rules and regulations, legalities. And they concentrate on these. They don't understand this, this, this right. And they miss the glory and the wonder of it all. Technicalities. Missing the wood because of the trees. Ah, that is still the trouble, you know, with people who are not Christians. I know people who say that they've read the Bible. And then you ask them, well, what do you make of the Bible? And you know, they say, I, I find that odd point there in Leviticus. I, I can't quite grasp that. And then there was that question, you see, of that man Cain. Who could he have married? And 
than this, uh, whatever it was, that swallowed Jonah. Well, it's all right, you left, but that's precisely the points that they bring up. The catch questions, you see, you can hear them in Hyde Park whenever you like, or any similar place, or wherever these things are discussed by people, and they think they're clever. Now, what's, what's the trouble? Well, this is the same old trouble, you see. They haven't seen the big thing. But some little odd thing they, they can't, quite, can't quite understand. Some odd minutiae and details here and there that was the whole curse of these Pharisees. Looking at little segments on the perimeter and missing the center. Very concerned about these little details. But oh, the big and the grand and the glorious thing they'd never seen and they couldn't see it and they couldn't hear. Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. You see, the very approach of these men is enough to damn them. How can such smallness of mind ever really see the glory and the grandeur of it all? It's like a man standing on top of a mountain with a glorious panorama stretching in front of him and the most magnificent sunset he's ever seen in his life. But he's worried because he's got a little mud on one of his boots. That's unbelief. Always engaged with the trivial and the minutiae and missing the glorious, the tremendous. But notice, in addition to that, their entirely wrong spirit which they display towards him. It's there in that kind of foolish, finicky question. But of course it is revealed in all the questions that they put to him and the very desire to question him. Wouldn't you have thought that when somebody stood before them, and especially a person like the Son of God, I don't like people who attempt to paint him. I don't like pictures of our Lord. I, I, I don't think they should be allowed even, because it's all imagination. We don't know what he looked like, and it, they can be misleading. But while I say that, I say this also. I know that there must have been something about him which has never been seen before in a human face. There must have been. John tells us in the prologue to this book, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Perhaps he was referring there to the Mount of Transfiguration and so on, I don't know, but I know this. It is inconceivable that something of the eternal glory and the divine were not there manifesting themselves somehow. These people were looking into his face and here he is making this tremendous and yet look at the way they keep on questioning him, trying to trip him and to trap him and to pull him up and to get him to contradict himself. Oh, what's the matter with these people? How can they believe while they're in that state and condition? And that is what men are still doing. Trying to somehow or another show an inconsistency. They haven't seen the big thing, I say. They put their little questions. And indeed these go further than that. Did you notice their contempt? Did you notice the spleen that often creeps into their very words? Uh, did you notice how they turned to him and they said to him, Who art thou? Can't you hear it there? They ask him another question. Where is thy father? It's blasphemous. He'd been saying to them, I am one that bear witness of myself, and the father that sent me beareth witness of me. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? You see the ridicule and the contempt that is, that is in it all. And then later on you read the same thing. He said, uh, I, uh, you are from beneath, I am from above, you are of this world. 
I am not of this world. Can't ye hear him saying it? I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who are Who are you making yourself out to be? What are you claiming for? The sarcasm, the contempt, the ridicule, the mocking. That is implicit in the whole of their attitude towards him, in the questions they ask, and especially in the way that they ask them. Now there it is, I say. All that is indicative of nothing but a general prejudice. Who are Who are you making yourself out to be? What are you claiming for? The sarcasm, the contempt, the ridicule, the mocking. That is implicit in the whole of their attitude towards him, in the questions they ask, and especially in the way that they ask them. Now there it is, I say. All that is indicative of nothing but a general prejudice. He never was given a chance by them. They'd judged him before he ever spoke. They'd condemned him before he'd said anything. They were determined not to believe in him, and they didn't because they were determined not to. And there are many people like that in the world today. My dear friend, your approach and your attitude is of vital importance. I can generally tell by the way people put questions to me. I can tell when a man wants to put a question to me, really just to justify his own position and to put me down and to show that Christianity is wrong. Oh, how different that is from the man who comes and asks a question because he wants help, because he'd like to know, because he's humble, because he realizes his own failure, because he's really in trouble, and he realizes his life is a failure. Oh, how differently does he put his question? This prejudice is fatal always to belief. But let me hurry to the second thing. Our Lord puts the second thing in the 15th verse. Listen to this. He says, you judge after the flesh. That's the trouble. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but you cannot tell whence I come and whither. You judge after the flesh. That's it. What does it mean? Now this is really of central importance. It means that there are two things. The first is this. He was stating it as an actual fact. He says, you are judging me after the flesh. By which he meant this. You are looking at me, but instead of listening to what I say to you, Instead of paying heed to my claim that I and I alone am the light of the world and that I can deliver you out of darkness, instead of listening to that and allowing that to stir within you and to move you and to make you ask, well, now then how? And ask me to give you further light and instruction. Instead of that, you're rejecting me and you're doing so because you're judged after the flesh. What you are saying is this. Light of the world. And the only light of the world. To follow him, no longer to walk in darkness, but to have the light of life. And you're only Jesus of Nazareth. We know all about you. You come from Nazareth. That's your home. And no good has ever come out of Nazareth. And who are you? Well, you're just a man. And a very ordinary man at that. You're not even a Pharisee. You've got no learning, you've had no training, you're a carpenter. 
What do you mean by saying that you and you alone are the light of the world? The thing they said is impossible. We are looking at you. We can see it. And therefore, he says, because you judge after the flesh, you are looking at the outward representation. You are looking at the form. You are looking at the shell. You see nothing but that. You judge by outward appearance and by nothing else. And that is why you don't believe me. Now, this, of course, is basic to the whole position of, of this matter of belief and unbelief. The Apostle Paul, you remember, in writing to the Corinthians, he puts it like this. He says that when our Lord was in this world, the princes of this world did not know him. For, he adds, had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had known that Jesus of Nazareth was the Lord of glory, they would most certainly never have crucified him. But they didn't know that. Why didn't they know that? Well, they judged after the flesh, you see. They said, Palestine? Is it conceivable that salvation is going to come out of Palestine? If it had come from the imperial city of Rome, aha, that would sound more like it. If it had come from Greece, if it had come from a philosopher, if it had come from some great state, we'd be ready to listen. But Palestine? Jew? And Nazareth? And a carpenter? And illiterate men? The thing they said was monstrous. This was foolishness to the Greeks. And that is why, you see, the princes of this world didn't know him. And that is why they crucified him. They looked at Jesus of Nazareth and they saw nothing but Jesus. They saw nothing but a man. They never saw the Lord of glory that was in him. They were judging after the flesh. Oh, how common this is. This is what unbelief does to us. You see, it blinds us. Let me give you an illustration from the poet. The poet describes this sort of man. A primrose by a river's brim, a yellow primrose was to him, and it was nothing more. That's all. Just a yellow primrose. Well, what's in a primrose, says this man. Practical, hard-headed man of affairs. He said, what are you getting excited about? That's only a primrose. And a yellow primrose is there. He's a yellow primrose. And there it is. No, no, says the other poet. To me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that often lie too deep for tears. What makes the difference? Oh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You can look at the greatest glories in nature and creation. See nothing in them. I've often said this. There are people who can look at and listen to the greatest masterpieces in music and say nothing. I always remember the man who told me that he felt Beethoven was a sick headache. And I remind you again that the man in saying that didn't tell me anything about Beethoven, but he told me a great deal about himself. He was like these Pharisees. These people saw nothing but just the human being that was before them. They sensed nothing of the glory, all that was there, as it were, shining through it all. They saw nothing in his words except to them something which bordered on the blasphemous. Impossible. You judge after the flesh. And that's why you don't believe. But you know, it means a second thing. And I want to emphasize this. You judge after the flesh. What's he mean? Well, he means that their whole way of thinking, their whole process of thinking, was such that they couldn't possibly believe in him. You think, you reason, you understand, he said, after the flesh only. What does he mean? Well, he meant exactly what he meant when he was speaking to Nicodemus. There's the classical example, isn't it? 
Nicodemus comes at night and puts his question, and our Lord says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right, says Nicodemus. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Patently impossible. Unanswerable, isn't it? It's the sort of thing that can't happen. He says, here am I an old man. Are you really suggesting that I can go back again into my mother's womb and be born again? Brilliant, isn't it? That would go down well in your debating society. That's one of those unanswerable statements, isn't it? Facts, you see, facts. Scientific facts. And you can't argue with facts. How can a man be born when he's old? Rubbish. Nonsense. And then to drive it right home with just a touch of irony and sarcasm. Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Loud applause from the other side. The case of the opposition is unanswerable. Wait a minute, here's the answer. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You're in different realms. Don't think you can ever understand that with this. The flesh can't comprehend that. This is spirit. Don't marvel. Marvel not, he says to Nicodemus. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Don't marvel at it. Why? Well, you see, he says, this isn't in the realm of the flesh at all. This is entirely in the realm of the spirit, the miraculous, the divine, the supernatural. And you mustn't bring your little intellect here, Nicodemus. This is more like the wind. You hear the sound, you can't see. You don't understand it, but you see the results and the effects. Nicodemus, says our Lord, pressing him until poor Nicodemus is speechless. Art thou a master of Israel and understandest not these things? If I have spoken unto you earthly things and he believed them not, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? That's it. You judge after the flesh. That's still the main cause of unbelief. What does it mean? Well, it means this, you see, for me just to hurriedly divide it for you. It means that such people shut out revelation. They shut out the supernatural. Their approach is this. This is their view. They say in every realm and department of life, a man has to search for truth. How have we got these wonderful new drugs of ours? Scientific research and investigation. How have we got all the knowledge? How have we got these microphones? Uh, has all this suddenly been revealed to somebody? Not at all. Patient research. Facts collated, collected. Deductions drawn. Experiments tried. Ah, glimmering of truth. Try it again. Make a modification. And so on and on you go. Seeking, searching, arriving at truth. That's the whole course of life, they say, and of history. That's how it's always happened. And they say it must be like that all through life, from beginning to end, and in connection with what you call ultimate truth. So they start out by shutting out the whole notion of revelation, which is the central claim of this book. The Bible starts, you see, by telling us, now the moment you come here, you've got to drop that other method, because it can't work. It's true, it works on the scientific level. But when you come to deal with God, can a man by searching find out God? Of course he can't. Because God is infinite and absolute and eternal. No man hath seen God at any time. We're told that in the prologue. It's no use attempting it. It will never succeed. 
Men have tried throughout the centuries, but the world by wisdom knew not God, says the Apostle Paul, again to those Corinthians. It can't be done. Therefore give it up at the beginning. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit, and God is spirit, and dwelleth in a light which is unapproachable, and no man can ever get there. What happens then? Well, we are dependent entirely upon revelation. If God should be pleased to reveal himself, well, then we'll know something about him. But apart from that, we cannot. But these people reject revelation. That is what the Pharisees were doing here. Our Lord was saying, listen to me. I am the light of the world. I'm claiming this, the only light of the world. And I can give you light. But they judged after the flesh. They said, no, this is not. We don't believe this. That's what men are still doing. They dismiss the whole notion and category of revelation. They talk about seeking and searching after the truth. They talk about the great quest for ultimate reality. We're all philosophers. We are trying to arrive at it. You never will. And you've got to start here by realizing that you never can. And you've got to submit yourself, as Christ put it, except a man be converted and become, except he be converted and become as little children. He shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. You've got to be born again, he says, before you can ever see it. Leave alone, enter it. But you see, that's out today. The idea today is this, that man is supreme, and we are not going to believe anything unless it fits into our knowledge, and especially unless it fits into our scientific knowledge. The modern man, he says, he will not believe anything unless it conforms to what he knows and what he has discovered. And as long as he says that, he cannot possibly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot possibly be brought out of darkness into light. He can never be saved. He'll go on looking and seeking and searching and making a miserable failure of his life as he does so. He's got to start with revelation. He's got to start by admitting that all his garnered knowledge doesn't help him one iota in this matter of knowing God. It is because no man can ever arrive at a knowledge of God that God sent his only Son into this world to reveal him. It is the only way. But it shows itself in a second way, which is this. That human reason understanding are made supreme. And there's no doubt about this today. That is what is being done by all who are unbelievers. Unless it's being done by many who call themselves Christian, who thereby deny the very first statement of this gospel, which is man's total inability and the absolute need of revelation from beginning to end. But that is what is being done today. Isn't this it? Human reason is the final arbiter. Human reason is the ultimate court of appeal about what? Well, about God himself. <coughs> and men believe about God only what they choose to believe. They don't hesitate to say, I will not believe, I cannot believe. But God is capable of anger or wrath. 
Or that God could ever punish anybody. And because they can't believe it, they say God doesn't do it. What's it, what they're doing? Well, you see, what they're doing is this. They are creating their own God. They are deciding what God is like. But on what authority? Simply on the authority of their own reason and understanding. They say it is inconceivable to me. I can't imagine. Because they can't. It isn't true. Now, that is just to put human reason and understanding into the supreme position, even about the being of the infinite, absolute, eternal God himself. That's what they're doing. They're doing the same thing, of course, about the virgin birth. They say this thing is impossible scientifically. Therefore, it didn't happen. See, it's man's knowledge. Man's capacity to understand and to grasp with his reason and his understanding. If a man can't understand it and grasp it, how can these things be? Can a man second time into his mouth? Virgin birth, impossible, never happened. Therefore, it hasn't happened. You see what's happening? The ultimate authority is man's reason and understanding. Man who's making the world as it is today. Man who's had two world wars in this present century and who can't control his own little life. He doesn't hesitate to legislate about God and his being and all that God can do. Virgin birth rejected. He doesn't understand it. All the miracles the same? They've got to go. Not consistent with scientific knowledge and facts. Therefore it hasn't happened. Resurrection? The literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave? They say it doesn't happen. Things like that can't happen. So they reject the literal physical resurrection. All these things go by the board. And then you come to the great doctrine of the atonement. And you say, my friend, this is what you need to know. That God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, my friend, though you're a sinner, and though you're helpless and hopeless, and though you have no ghost of a chance of standing before God in the judgment, and though you're going to hell, listen. God so loved you that he put your sins upon his own son. He put your guilt on him and he suffered for it. God punished his son for you. And he stands back and he says, I can't possibly believe it. It's immoral to me. Why, he can't, you see. His understanding. You see, he thinks his understanding can comprehend the love of God. He can't see that that's the supreme revelation of the love of God. This incredible thing that I can't. It's immoral to me. So he brings up his questions, you see. These trick questions and these objections on the grounds of logic and morality and ethics. And he rejects the most amazing thing that the world has ever been told. The Son of God himself said it. The Son of Man is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister. And to give his life a ransom for many. They say, impossible, it's wrong. One can't die for another. I wouldn't do that. So if I wouldn't, how can God? Man's the standard, man's reason, man's understanding, man's knowledge. And it is because of that that men reject Christ. Yes, he says, you judge after the flesh. You are putting up your little minds and knowledge and understanding as the ultimate authority, as the ultimate court of appeal. And because I'm saying something to you that doesn't fit into your categories, your ideas and your understanding, you reject me. You judge after the flesh. And the ultimate cause of all this, you see, is nothing but what the Bible calls spiritual blindness, spiritual deadness. That was the trouble with these men. They lacked a spiritual faculty. 
Their own reason, their own knowledge, their own eyesight, their looking impossible. They say, materialism, the human, the carnal, this world, and they know nothing about the other world. And so I say, they always miss the most glorious things that he ever said. Here he is talking to them about his father. If he had known me, he should have known my father also. And then they say, where is thy father? He tells them marvelous things about himself, about how he left the courts of heaven and humbled himself and made himself of no reputation to be born as a man, saying, I am not of this world. And this is the reply. Who are thou? Cynicism, sarcasm, and scorn. And when he tells them about his death, do you remember their reaction? When he told them about his death, they said, what's he mean by this? What's he mean by saying that whether I go, ye cannot come? Will he kill himself? Is he going to commit suicide? You see, here's the Son of God telling them, look here, I've come from heaven to earth in order to lay down my life for you and for your sins. It's the biggest thing he ever said. He couldn't say a greater thing. It's the most amazing thing even he ever did. And yet here's the response. Is he going to commit suicide? Will he kill himself because he says, whether I go, you cannot come? Oh, there's only one explanation of this, my friends. It's complete spiritual blindness. It is complete spiritual deadness. They lack a spiritual faculty. These spiritual things are no longer real to them. They're this world, flesh only, and dead to the glories of God and the spiritual realm. Very well, I ask my simple question. Do you believe on the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Lord of glory? Do you really believe that he is the light of the world? Have you really believed on him and have you followed him? He says, he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Have you got it? Have you found that you know God in Jesus Christ? Do you know that your sins are forgiven because he died for you? Have you got that light? Have you got a new nature? Are you aware of a new life and another power working within you? Drawing you from the world, drawing you to him? Are you aware of the fact that you're a new man? What is he to you? He stands before you still. He says the same thing. Have you believed in him? Have you given yourself to him? Have you taken up your cross and have you walked after him? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? That's the question. Or are you like these men? Tripped up by this and I don't understand it. I, I can't explain. Is that your attitude still? Have you missed the big, the glory? And are you still dealing with your little minutiae? Have you felt something of this power? Have you seen something of this glory? This glorious message? My dear friend, I'm pressing my question for this reason. There is a sense, of course, in which one can understand these people, these Pharisees. I mean this, you know, there is no excuse for them. But at any rate, there is this much to be said for them. They rejected him before he died and before his resurrection. They were looking at him in the days of his flesh, in the days of his humiliation. 
In the days when he'd made himself of no reputation, there was no excuse even then, because there were others there, these disciples and others, in exactly the same position, but they believed on him. There was no excuse, but in a sense, I say, oh, one could put up some kind of defense for them. But you can't say that any longer. Since then, he has died upon that cross. Amazing, the centurion who stood by and said, Verily, this was the Son of God. The resurrection has happened since. The day of Pentecost has happened since. With the shedding of the Holy Ghost, the founding of the church, the whole centuries of Christian teaching and the story of the Christian church are staring you in the face. The great revivals, all that Christianity has meant to the individual throughout the running centuries. All that is against you. And do you know I sometimes feel that one of the things that will damn the unbeliever most of all at the bar of judgment is this. The prophecies of Jesus Christ that have since been verified. Because you remember what he said. He prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. He told them it was going to be destroyed, that the temple was going to be flattened, and that the city of Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, and that the Jews, his own people, were going to be cast out among the nations. He prophesied that, you know, Nearly 40 years before it came to pass, they didn't believe it, they ridiculed it, but it happened. Now, I say these facts of history are important. A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem and all that has happened to the Jews ever since is an absolute verification of the teaching and the prophecy of this man who said, I am the light of the world. There it is, standing before you. The preservation of the Jews as a separate race, I believe, is a standing testimony to the same event facing you. But let me put it like this. I believe the state of the world this very evening is one of the greatest proofs of all that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. How is this somebody? Well, like this. He always said that this is an evil world. He has never said what the politicians and the poets and the philosophers have always said, that this world was going to get better and better. He never said it. He said the exact opposite. He said there shall be wars and rumors of wars. He said that the last days were going to be very terrible days. Confusion, earthquakes, pestilences. He said all this. Famines, troubles. People fighting one another and against. That's the picture he painted. He even said this. He said, when the Son of Man is come, shall he find the faith on the earth? He even prophesied that his own cause would have dwindled almost to nothing at the end. Far from growing and developing and getting better and better and the church becoming greater and greater, he said the exact opposite. He painted a very dark picture of the future history of mankind and especially just before the end. If you don't see all that being verified and fulfilled in the world as it is this evening, there's only one explanation. It is total spiritual blindness. It is sheer inability to face the facts. It is to be blinded by prejudices and preconceived notions and ideas. 
Have you seen him? Have you seen and known that this is the light of the world, the Son of God, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Lord? Have you believed on him? Have you gone after him? Are you walking after him? Are you beginning to see the light? And do you want more and more? If you do, God bless you. If you don't, well, again, I say, look at yourself. As you see yourself depicted in these Pharisees, see the real cause and explanation of it all. See that you're spiritually dead. See that you lack a spiritual optic nerve. See that you're paralyzed in your vision. See that you need new life, new power. You need to be born again. You need the action of the Spirit of God upon you. See your appalling blindness as you look at them. And fall before God, repent, acknowledge your darkness, your blindness, ask him to have mercy upon you and to open your eyes. And if you do that, he will hear you. He will answer you. You will find that you've got new life. And you'll see that Christ is the Savior of the world and your own personal Savior. And you'll begin to enjoy the new life of the new man in Christ Jesus. Amen.